Thank you for inviting me down here. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Known Fred for, I don't know, 10, 12 years now, and um, exceptionally grateful for his service on the board of directors of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, and then later um, as the fifth district's representative on the what's called the Federal Advisory Council, a body up in Washington with representatives from around um, the country that advises uh, the Board of Governors, Chairman Bernanke and the like on uh, banking matters. Uh, his service was outstanding. I'm also grateful for Fred for helping to introduce me uh, to some people here in the great state of South Carolina. He's on a number of occasions uh, helped set up uh, events for me to get to know more about the state and the region down here. It's an important part of our economy. Some really interesting things are going on down here and have over the many years, and I'm grateful for Fred's role in helping us learn about that. It's an honor to be invited uh, here, um, as uh, some of you in this uh, room are commencing uh, the legislative session. Uh, it's beginning here in South Carolina. I wish you all the best of luck in uh, a process of uh, searching for better means of fostering increases in the well-being of uh, the citizens of this uh, fair state. Elected officials and policymakers nationwide have had their hands full lately, and the legislative process, as we saw in Washington the last couple of weeks, is, has been particularly contentious endeavor um, for policymakers um, these days. And I think of it as for good reason, because we're, we find ourselves as a nation in uh, circumstances that are very challenging. My remarks today, what I want to do is review current economic conditions and uh, talk about the outlook uh, for uh, future economic growth. Um, and I'm hoping that this background uh, that I provide to you will prove useful uh, as you either go about your business or go about your legislative duties. Along the way, I'll also have a few words to say about monetary policy. Uh, and there, I think you'll see that central banking can be as challenging as the legislative process, equally contentious, some might say. Before I begin, I need to say uh, what I often always say when I speak in public, which is that um, the views I'll express are my own and, and not necessarily the Federal Reserve System's view or uh, shouldn't be attributed necessarily to others in the Federal Reserve System. So I'm going to begin today with a few words about the outlook for inflation. Uh, and I do that because uh, maintaining price stability over time uh, is really the Federal Reserve's primary mission as the nation's central bank. Over the last 20 years, the Fed has uh, had a commendable record, uh, in my view, um, on inflation. Uh, it's averaged 2% uh, over the last per year over the last 20 years, and I think that's a, a commendable record. Uh, there have been year-to-year -year fluctuations, to be sure, uh, but these temporary swings have tended to even out over time, and inflation has always tended to gravitate back towards uh, 2%. Now, um, inflation was running um, at elevated rates a few months ago, uh, and it was pushed up by about a year ago and then uh, earlier um, in the fall by a bulge in retail gasoline prices as crude oil prices have fluctuated. Uh, but energy prices have subsided in the last couple of months, and that's keeping the overall inflation rate down temporarily. Uh, futures markets for uh, energy-related commodities uh, show flat or declining energy prices, and on that basis, most economists are expecting uh, in headline inflation, overall inflation, that includes 
energy prices to average a little less than two and a half, uh, sorry, a little less than 2% next year. Uh, and that's an, an outlook I agree with. Uh, I think that's spot on. In contrast to inflation, real economic growth, jobs, economic activity, sales and the like, um, and labor market conditions are affected by uh, a range of factors uh, that are outside of the control of the central bank, uh, the Federal Reserve. Um, in fact, the effects of monetary stimulus from the central bank on real output and on employment and labor market conditions is less than is widely thought, I believe. Um, the, the effects consist largely of a temporary transitory sort of byproduct of um, frictions that temporarily delay businesses' ability to adjust prices in response to changes in monetary condition as they, uh, they occur. And these, these are transitory departures and they tend to um, disappear over time. Attempts to overstimulate real economic activity via monetary policy can instead run the risk of raising inflation pressures. Indeed, for reasons that I'll discuss later on, I see some material upside risks to the inflation outlook in 2014 and beyond, given the current trajectory of monetary policy. Um, although I, I should say and emphasize that my baseline outlook, what I think is most likely, is for inflation to head to around 2% in 2014 and beyond, beyond the, which is the Federal Reserve's stated long-run goal for inflation. So turning to the outlook for real economic activity, uh, since the Great Recession officially bottomed out in June of 2009, um, we've seen economic activity expand at only a modest pace. Real gross domestic product, people refer to this as GDP, and it's the broadest and uh, most sensible measure of overall economic activity in our economy. Real GDP has risen at an average annual rate of 2.2% since the recession ended. Now that's widely viewed as a disappointing pace and uh, the reason is that it falls short of the average uh, GDP growth rate of three and a half percent that the U.S. economy achieved in the last century, in the 20th century. So typically, uh, you would expect growth to exceed the long run average during an expansion to make up for those instances of negative growth that occurred during contractions. So several factors appear to be uh, impeding a more rapid expansion of the U.S. economy. First is the housing boom that occurred before the Great Recession. It created a substantial oversupply of new homes. And there's been a significant amount of progress uh, that's been evident in eating into that oversupply, but we still haven't completely um, fulfilled that, that that process. We haven't completely worked through the, the oversupply. So home construction and housing prices were essentially flat for the first two years after the uh, recession ended. Last year though, housing activity picked up and was a source of modest strength for the U.S. economy. Prices in many markets bottomed out and have risen some, uh, and new construction activity uh, has begun um, steadily improving uh, over the course of the last year. Having said that, though, uh, while housing is likely to contribute, I think, positively to U.S. growth next year, we shouldn't expect, and I don't think we should desire, a return to the booming housing uh, market conditions that we saw uh, just prior to the last recession. 
So a second and related um, factor um, behind the slow recovery we've been experiencing is the significant shift of economic activity away from industries related to residential construction. So this would be the construction industry itself, uh, but also construction building supplies and related sort of supply industries. Rapid loss of job in these industries layered on top of an ongoing uh, longer run secular trend um, that uh, has, res has resulted in large uh, inflows into the ranks of the unemployed. And it's caused an adverse shift in the composition of the pool of, of unemployed. Now, this often recur occurs in recession, that you get sort of more, a uh, larger fraction of the unemployed are, are low-skilled workers. Um, and it, it delays the recovery out of the recession uh, because of the need for capital investment in the sectors that those, in, that those workers are destined to, to shift to and uh, time-consuming um, uh, retraining efforts uh, to facilitate that shift of workers to new sectors, and that slows down the decline of unemployment. This effect seems likely to be more pronounced this time because of the tremendous magnitude of the decline in residential construction uh, activity that we saw. Um, so uh, that's a, a reason why this effect might be significantly larger in this recovery. Third, the recession appears to have made many consumers more cautious, uh, less willing to spend relative to their income and wealth. The magnitude of the decline in jobs that was experienced and the aggregate uh, loss of income that was experienced in this recession was far larger than anything American households had seen in total um, before that since the Great Depression, certainly for the prior 25 years. It was accompanied by an unusually large decline in home equity and uh, thus in household net worth. So wealth declined substantially as well. Moreover, given uh, the experience lenders had in this recession, given their loss experience, um, terms and qualification standards for new credit have been tightened up. They're significantly more stringent uh, than they were before. So households understandably have become more apprehensive about their future income prospects, their future access to credit, and they've become more interested in paying off financial obligations and building up savings uh, for a rainy day. So while consumer spending has grown substantially in this recovery, um, the, the tempered pace at which it's been growing has really limited the overall pace of this expansion relative to historical experiences. So finally, our contacts throughout the 5th District, it extends to Maryland, out to West Virginia, down to down here to South Carolina, have been for a long time emphasizing that uncertainty uh, has co been causing them to um, delay hiring and investment uh, decisions and commitments. These reports have become more frequent in the past uh, year, particularly this past spring. And this past spring, they started focusing more heavily on uncertainty related to the year-end fiscal cliff that we just uh, went off of for a day. And, uh, back up, I guess you'd say. Uh, so if you, th if you think about that, why that uncertainty might be problematic, um, think about the array of fiscal policy tools that are going to be on the table to remedy the fiscal imbalance we have at the federal level. Taxes on virtually anyone could go up. Spending on virtually anything could go down. And 
between those two, you've covered pretty much the whole economy. Just about everyone is going to be, could be potentially affected. And not knowing where the axe is going to fall, not knowing where uh, the cost is going to come. Um, for a lot of firms, it's, it, they've just found it uh, more attractive to sit on the sidelines. Um, even apart, though, from ambiguity about how Congress is going to navigate, Congress and the administration are going to navigate the fiscal cliff and, and then the, the debt ceiling that's coming up and then the, the end of the continuing resolution and the sequester, um, even apart from U.S. fiscal policy uncertainty, there's significant uncertainty that remains about longer run tax and spending plans. Our fiscal imbalance is a, a, a fundamental issue that's going to face us even after we get by the cliff um, or the debt ceiling. Um, un there's uncertainty remains about some very broad regulatory realignments uh, that are in train. Uh, and how they come out is, is potentially uncertain as well. And the European economies and just what's going on there is a, an overhang of uncertainty as well for many firms. So in short, a range of factors um, appear to be restraining our current economic expansion. And while that pace is below uh, the long-run average for the U.S. over the last couple of, uh, last century or two, it's easy to identify plausible factors. Very hard to quantify this, but it's easy to identify plausible uh, potential explanations for the shortfall in our growth. As for the outlook for the U.S. economic growth, the bet, my best guess is that growth will continue into this year uh, at an annual rate of around 2%. So a little bit below the average we've had over the last three years. Because I think many of the recent, the things that have been recently impeding growth are likely to continue to restrain activity um, in the quarters ahead. Beyond this year, beyond 2013, the rate of growth could rise uh, if the effects of some of these restraining factors ease and that seems plausible to me. Meaningful progress on the federal budget, uh, particularly the long-run imbalance that must be addressed, that could alleviate some of the policy uncertainty I talked about that appears to have dampened growth last year. The risks emanating from Europe uh, could diminish this year if they uh, emerge from the recession they're currently in the midst of and make progress towards the new institutional arrangements uh, they're building. And improved European growth prospects um, next year uh, would be a positive for U.S. growth. And I think U.S. households could well be more confident uh, and better disposed to spending a year from now. Improvements in the effectiveness of labor markets, ability to match workers and job openings could lead to gains in household uh, income. Uh, modest additional growth in home prices along the lines we saw last year could help household net worth and all these developments might aid uh, consumers' willingness uh, to, uh, to spend. This outlook isn't without risks. Significant energy price increases could de derail this recovery. Failure to resolve a significant amount of the policy uncertainty uh, could continue to dampen growth. Even, even with a resolution of fiscal uncertainty, um, there's significant uncertainty regarding regulatory policy, uh, and that could continue to dampen growth as well. Um, on the other hand, a, a stronger-than-expected resurgence in confidence um, is not inconceivable if we were able to make rapid and convincing progress uh, towards fiscal sustainability. So I need to say a word about the longer run for the U.S. Even though growth has been below our longer run trend for the last couple of years, 
uh, I believe that the fundamental prospects uh, for U.S. growth um, for the longer run remain quite strong. Uh, the flexibility and resilience of our markets, uh, along with a relatively well-educated populace, make this a, an advantageous place to implement new innovations. One major challenge over the longer haul is finding an effective way to deepen knowledge and skills of our people. And here, I, I, I believe this because expanding our human capital is fundamental to improving standards of living. And the reason is that new technologies often require higher skills from our workforce uh, in order to implement them effectively. So what role does monetary policy play in this outlook? Well, as I said, our primary responsibility at the Federal Reserve is to keep inflation low and stable. Uh, this allows businesses and consumers to make decisions without having to worry about what might happen to the purchasing power of the dollar. My economic outlook presumes that the FOMC will not allow monetary instability to interfere with or disrupt the growth process, which is what happened in the 1970s when inflation was high and variable. Beyond that, though, beyond avoiding economic damage associated with higher variable inflation, I think it's unlikely that the Federal Reserve can push real growth rates materially higher than they otherwise would be on a sustained basis. Nonetheless, at its December meeting, the FOMC adopted measures to attempt to bolster economic growth. Notably, the committee decided to continue the monthly purchases of $40 billion of agency mortgage-backed securities and $45 billion of U.S. Treasury securities. The committee also underscored its attention to real economic activity and employment by stating its forward guidance about future policy in terms of a 6.5% threshold for unemployment. I dissented from these committee actions, and I've expressed my concerns at length elsewhere. Briefly, as I touched on earlier today, I, I think monetary stimulus is unlikely uh, to materially increase the pace of economic expansion, and I think these, in, these actions will test uh, the limits of our credibility, the credibility of our commitment to keep inflation low and stable. At some point, we are going to need to withdraw economic stimulus by raising interest rates and reducing the size of our balance sheet. And the larger our balance sheet is at the Federal Reserve when that time comes, the more vulnerable we will be to seemingly minor miscalculations uh, of policy. Accordingly, I see a, 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 an increased risk, given the course that the committee has set, that inflation pressures emerge next year and beyond uh, and are not thwarted in a timely way. And I, I intend to remain alert for signs that our monetary policy uh, needs adjustment. In closing, let me reiterate that despite uh, the unique nature of the monetary and fiscal policy challenges we face as a country, the, the fundamentals for growth in the United States are strong, and I think they augur well for growth possibilities in the years just ahead. To me, this suggests that the rewards are high for us to get economic policy right. And as an economist, I have to believe that people, even economic policymakers, uh, respond to incentives. Uh, so I thank you for your attention, um, and uh, it's been a pleasure to speak with you.
take a few questions. Yes. Absolutely. Be delighted. Welcome once again. Uh, I want to call BIPEC members' attention to the blue slips that you have on your table here. These are for your questions. So if you have any burning questions that arose uh, during Dr. Lacker's uh, address, uh, please uh, write those and we'll ask the uh, BIPEC interns to be aggressive about picking these up. So if you would wander through the audience from time to time, we can get those up. We've got about 15 minutes for questions and we have some questions we have prepared in advance, but uh, also would like to get your questions in BIPEC members. Uh, first of all, um, as a member of the Federal Reserve's uh, Open Market Committee, uh, some of us are curious how open Chairman Bernanke, uh, South Carolina native, uh, is to discussing opposing opinions. There was the thought, and I think you served uh, under previous Chairman Greenspan as well, that Chairman Greenspan did not exactly encourage dissent. But you have not been reluctant about dissent. In fact, I almost think you're a character from the James Bond movie, Dr. No, because you've not been afraid to say no in 2007, 2009. You have a strong history of that. You can tell I'm somewhat of a fan. So this is a softball question. But, but tell us, uh, in those discussions, is there a difference between uh, Bernanke and uh, Greenspan? So um, I, I was privileged to serve um, uh, on the FOMC under Chairman Greenspan for a couple of years before um, Chairman Bernanke uh, from Dillon uh, assumed office. The committee has become, over time, even during Greenspan's tenure, but, but succeeding after that with Bernanke, more and more collegial. Um, so it's, it's a deferential, polite body. The, the discussion is, is uh, couched in, in very polite terms. Um, but if you look back, and you can look back on the transcripts if, if you've got some time to kill, uh, which are on the web up through 2006, um, and see that, that under Greenspan, um, the discussion um, uh, didn't, discussion of opposing views didn't go on nearly as long as they do under Bernanke. So he's, he's very tolerant. He lets people express their views. He doesn't sort of close off discussion and move the, dis move the, the, the stream of discussion on to something else. He will engage and allow us to engage in debate. Um, and it's been, uh, I think it's a, a very healthy deliberative process. Uh, so I've been very pleased with the collegiality of the deliberations within the room. Um, as for dissenting, um, these are hard times. Uh, we make uh, tough calls. Um, I've been able to dissent and express my view. And, and, I, and, and when I do that, I, I feel as if it's, we all respect each other's um, obligation to come to the, the meeting um, having prepared as hard as we can with our best independent judgment to express those judgments, listen to each other, and then vote accordingly. And you'll see at meetings where people dissent, you'll see, you'll see jokes, you'll see conviviality, uh, you know, spring up in the transcript. So it's, it's a process in which I retain friendships with people on the committee that are very active and that, um, you know, continue despite us disagreeing at times sharply about certain uh, economic policy issues. So it's been a, a collegial process, and I think the chairman's done a great job in fostering an evolution of the culture of the, the institution. Thank you. Uh, on the matter of um, QE1, QE2, and QE3, unlike one of the legislators suggested, those are not ships in Her Majesty's Navy. That was, that was a joke. 
Don't help me, Wells Fargo. Um, those, those are important policy issues. If you could give us uh, the advantage, maybe take us back a little bit to Economics 101, tell us, tell us what quantitative easing is, uh, and we've been through three rounds of it, and we know you can't comment on the details of the discussions within the uh, Open Market Committee, but are those good policies? Uh, does there need to be a four? Should there not have been a one? So um, quantitative easing is um, just refers to us buying assets. Um, and picture any entity with assets and liabilities. We're like that. We're a central bank. Our liabilities are money, um, and they come in two forms, the paper currency you, you have in your pocket and reserve account balances is what we call them. So banks have checking accounts with us, in essence. When we purchase an asset, we credit funds to a bank's some banks account, so it increases the money supply and takes that asset out of the market. Um, so quantitative easing refers to the process of us providing stimulus by buying assets and increasing the money supply that way. Central banks do this when they've cut interest rates. The normal way we conduct monetary policy is to, is to peg a certain interbank interest rate and move it up and down. When we've cut interest rates down to close to zero, it's virtually impossible to go much further. And the reason is that it's hard to get people to lend money at negative interest rates because you could just hold on to your money and earn zero. Um, so um, at that point, um, the only um, potential for stimulating the economy is quantitative easing. Now, here's it, this is a tricky thing. Um, if you think in terms of the supply and demand for money, it's the easiest way to do it. If we increase the supply past the demand, something's got to give. And what gives is inflation. Um, if we increase the supply of money and we haven't gotten up to where demand is at zero interest rates, we're not going to cause inflation. Um, and um, so we haven't yet sparked inflation. People have been afraid of this. And believe me, I've worried about this and, and uh, taken a real cautious approach to it. We haven't yet sparked inflation. Uh, through our quantitative easing. Um, but the, the time may come when, when the demand for money declines. And that, what form that, what would that look like? Well, with banks, banks are happy to hold all the reserves we've pumped into the system now because they're, they're holding even more in what they call liquidity buffers. So they hold reserves, plus they hold some liquid assets. And if they wanted to hold less, they might get down to the point where all, they wanted to hold less than we were supplying. The only, th the only thing that would give in that situation would be inflation. It would be inflation that would, that would, would res result if that happened. And so we have to be alert to pull the money out when the demand is no longer there. So the effects of this quantitative easing, how it stimulates the economy at a point where you haven't caused inflation, there's different theories about that. And I, w I don't want to walk you through the details. Uh, it, we're we're kind of feeling our way. It's the, the evidence is ambiguous, sort of murky. Uh, there's a case that could be made that we that, that it lowers longer-term interest rates. Um, there's a case that could be made that it doesn't, and uh, the evidence is uncertain. What's sure is that it, it has the potential to complicate things when the time comes and we have to reduce our balance sheet and start raising interest rates, because that time's going to come for sure. And that's why that's sort of the center of the debate. The debate has to do with whether they have much of an effect, in other words, the efficacy of the quantitative easing and the costs in terms of the risks 
of it complicating things down the road. And reasonable policymakers can disagree on the benefits and the costs. And I think you see that emphasized in the committee statement and in the chairman's statements as well. And it's going to be the focus of our conversations, I think, in the meetings ahead. Um, you know, are we still comfortable? Is the committee still comfortable that the the benefits exceed the cost for these things? Personally, I dissented because I thought the cost exceeded the benefits. So my view is already clear on that. We do have a question from a banker. The uh, According to this question, the banking industry is showing improvement each quarter. Most banks are very actively looking for opportunities to make good loans and more loans, but there's still very little loan demand. What and maybe when do you think demand will pick up? It's a really good question. Um, and I, I know uh, for those bankers in the audience, I know there's a table full of my, to my right here. Um, uh, you know, this has been a, a struggle for both bankers and regulators alike. Coming out of this recession, it was clear what we were in for was a, um, a sort of a re-engineering, reorganization, reconfiguration of the industry to some extent. Um, the regulatory underpinnings are being sort of overhauled. Um, banks are having to cope with that. We're having to cope with that. That process is by no means complete. Um, more regulations, more shoes are there to drop on that score. Um, at the same time, demand for lending, real demand for real bank lending is, is low now. It's hard to find qualified borrowers that want to, to take on uh, new debt. And the competition, uh, as a result of all the liquidity we've put in the system, the competition uh, for those credits is, is awfully fierce. I, I think that, that when the rate of growth picks up, if we got GDP growth at 3 4% for a year, I think you'd see significantly higher uh, demand for um, borrowing. At banks on the part of small businesses, um, and um, I think that's when you'd see that um, the, a, a greater willingness of banks to sort of dip into their liquidity buffers in order to lend, and that's when that that sort of problematic pro uh, process would emerge for us of deciding when to reduce bank reserves. Banks, um, uh, you know, banks. I don't think we've gotten to a point where mar bank margins are are at a sustainable level. Um, I, I don't think we've gotten to the, I don't think we've found the solution of just what, uh, you know, what are what are going to be the sources of, of sustainable profits for the banking industry. Um, you know, it's obviously going to come from something they provide a value that has less by way of substitutes uh, from alternative providers. And that's typically been on the lending side, typically to um, sets of borrowers, um, particularly in the, um, um, business side that don't have the, the capital markets access. And so the question is, when does that small business, medium-sized business demand pick up? And I, I think we're all waiting to, to see when that happens and, and, and what happens to margins when it does. It's often uh, difficult to disentangle the fiscal policy and economic policy, financial policy, from just politics. Um, we technically did not fall off the fiscal cliff on January the 1st, but we really did not get any kind of comprehensive changes, really no long-term solutions, um, which leads to a lot of uncertainty, particularly in the business community. How do you think we can reduce this uncertainty in the economy, particularly when there's so many questions about where we are fiscally, uh, maybe address the issue of entitlements, uh, this type of thing? That's a really good question. Um, so that 
this audience, uh, if you read the papers, you, you should be familiar with the long run imbalance, uh, that over time, uh, the lines diverge. And the problem that creates is that debt grows faster than our incomes as a, as a country. Debt grows faster, I talked about GDP. Debt grows faster than GDP. And so we have to, we have to bring something to bring those, those two lines into uh, alignment. Uh, and make the deficit so small that debt doesn't rise faster than our incomes. Um, until we do, I think there'll be this overhang of uncertainty that just stems from the notion that, well, something has to give. Either taxes are gonna go up or some cuts and entitlements are gonna have to come. And both either on either side, that's gonna weigh on people and lead them to be more cautious. They're gonna wanna build up savings. They're gonna be reluctant to um, build new plants, uh, engage in new enterprises. They're not gonna know what the bottom line is. Is this profitable, is it not? What do I need to charge? I'm not gonna know what prices I need to charge. Um, and for beneficiaries, I mean, it's sort of a commonplace observation that most baby boomers don't have much confidence that Social Security or Medicare will be there in the forms that are, that are there now. That causes folks with that belief to save more, spend less, in preparation, and so I, I think it's those long-run imbalances that are really the key that we need to address. Thank you. We've got uh, one more question, unless we have any more submitted. Uh, one more question, and that is, uh, during the presidential campaign of 2012, uh, I think every time that Ron Paul spoke in a debate or any kind of address, he had something to say about the Federal Reserve. And to him, the Federal Reserve was an unelected body that was somehow dangerous, and he kept talking about the need to audit the Fed. I'm not really sure uh, to this day exactly what he was talking about. Do you have any thoughts uh, on that whatsoever? Yeah, yeah. So um, somehow this myth has gotten out there that the Fed isn't audited. Um, I, I like to say we're you know audited every which way to Wednesday. Um, the, the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, which is the arm of the government that audits government agencies, audits the Fed. We, at any one time, we have between one and two dozen audits underway. They come in and look at our IT platforms, they look at our information security, they look at our accounting, they look at almost everything we do. One thing is off limits, and that is that they can't go pour over FOMC transcripts and second guess how we conduct monetary policy uh, the day after we, we, we announce a, a policy. And it, it, there's a good reason for that. Our structure, because we have an independent balance sheet and we're, gives us a measure of insulation from electoral politics, day-to-day -day electoral politics. And countries around the world found out and figured out in the 80s and 90s that it made sense to take their central bank and instead of being it under the thumb of the Minister of Finance and told to goose policy when it's time for an election and then we deal with inflation after the election, instead of that, we're, we're apart from the, the fray of electoral politics. So, Administration doesn't control us, Congress doesn't control us. That independence comes with a tremendous responsibility. The responsibility is to be accountable to the American people, and we are. We testify repeatedly throughout the year. The chairman goes up to Congress and talks about outcomes. We file a monetary policy report to Congress twice a year by law. You could do that four times a year if you'd like. We have a formal means of accounting for the outcomes, the described what happened with inflation, what's happening with growth, what's going on in the economy. We have independence about how we set interest rates because 
it involves it, it involves this delicate long-run trade-off. You don't want to go for the short-run gains at the expense of uh, pushing up inflation in the long run. So there's a wisdom to that, just carving out this tiny little slice of what we do, what we do at FOMC meetings and saying, all right, that's off limits to the GAO. But financially, we're totally audited. Our monetary policy actions are audited, uh, how we carry them out. We're audited by Deloitte Touche, all the reserve banks and the Board of Governors. Um, the Board of Governors audits the reserve banks. Um, we are heavily audited, and I, I think it's a bit of a canary. Thank you once again for being with us. Let's thank our speaker once again, Dr. Jeffrey Lacker.